The New Testament reading is from James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. The word of the Lord. Well, happy uh, Halloween to everyone. I learned that that was an actual thing on the way to church this morning for my daughter. So happy Halloween to everyone. And Halloween sort of starts the two months of the year where many people trigger their holiday nostalgia by watching Charlie Brown specials, which is curious because Peanuts is actually essentially a cartoon about kids with amplified dysfunction. You can just see their pathologies. It's very obvious. And the parents are completely incapable of helping any of them. They can't even understand their parents. And this is why Lucy's little five-cent psychiatry stand has so much business, because everyone is dysfunctional. Now, Charlie Brown is, of course, the main character, and he's a sweet kid, maybe a little boring. The one, to me, that is most interesting is Linus. He is likely a six on the Enneagram, which is the framework that we've been using to sort of chart out a course, a map of this series uh, this, this fall. And his life crutch is right out in the open for everyone to see. What is it? What's Linus's? It's a blanket, a blankie, right? He says, I need my blanket. I admit it. But look at all of you. Who among you doesn't have an insecurity? Who among you doesn't depend on someone or something to help you get through the day? Who among you can cast the first stone, Linus says. How about you, Sally, with your endless sweet baboos? These are apparently crushes. I had to look that up. Or you, Schroeder, you with your Beethoven, Beethoven, Beethoven. And you, Lucy, never leaving Schroeder alone, obsessing over someone who doesn't care if he ever sees you again. What do you want? Do you want me to be unhappy? Do you want me to be insecure? Do you want me to end up like Charlie Brown? Are any of you secure? This is from the episode, uh, Happiness is a Warm Blanket, which is just uh, so nostalgic. And it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? We've been using the Enneagram as sort of a, a roadmap for the ways that we tend to show up for life, the particularities of us that make us both endlessly interesting and compelling and human, but also often get in the way of our spiritual health and progress. And the, ways, the way that sixes show up for life is in need of security in need of safety, something tangible that they can hold on to that gives them a semblance that the world can be 
safe, that the future can be entered into with some level of confidence. And they're asking really questions that all of us ask, whether we're sixes or not. Am I safe? Is this person safe? Is this church safe? Where can I find assurance? And it's a quest- questions that all of us ask most acutely in childhood. And they're good and necessary questions and questions that children deserve to be able to answer affirmatively that, yes, my family is safe, my parents are safe. And yet, even in healthy families, children self-soothe. They choose a thumb or a favorite teddy bear or a blanket that offers them comfort in an overwhelming world. They have even less control than we do. And we see just how powerful and ultimately restricting that these things are because what happens when a child is separated from their thumb or their te- well, they sh- hopefully they're not separated from their thumb. <laughs> Let's insert pacifier maybe. Separated from their pacifier, their teddy bear or their blanket. When we moved here uh, 10 years ago, we took some time to see friends and family in Atlanta. So we flew back through Atlanta, and um, we were about to board for the five-hour flight to start a brand new life here in Portland. And we looked down, and two-year-old Elliot is in his stroller, but he didn't have his monkey blanket. Now, this is a blanket with a little padded monkey head, which is probably an unnecessary detail to the story. But Just imagine, he's just snuggling with it all the time, and this has been his prized possession, his companion, for two years in his life. And I looked down and I said, Elliot, where is Monkey Blanket? Because I'm starting to panic. And behind his pacifier, he says, down. That was all. That was the only detail he knew, was down. So somewhere in the entire Atlanta airport, since the time we came in, Monkey Blanket is down. And my heart is ripped in two at that moment because it, the Atlanta airport is gigantic. There's no way we're finding it. And our, our flight was boarding in like 15 minutes. And so here we are boarding this flight, five hours, four kids, one who was barely two, and they had just lost the most important thing in their entire existence. It was not boding well for our time at InTown. As adults, we know much more acutely, don't we, how dangerous and unpredictable and enigmatic our world is, and yet we can't be seen dragging blankets around. We need to be a little bit more subtle, and so what what do we do is we trade up to more sophisticated sort of totems of, of safety. If I can hold on to this thing, if I can capture this thing, if I can own this thing, then I'll be safe. And as we've said with all the numbers, there's a piece of them in all of us. All of us have some sickness to us, but the need for safety, for something tangible, for security, is most pressing with people who are generally sixes. But all of us, you see, we're gravitationally attracted to things, people, institutions, ideologies, theological systems that are basically more complex versions of Linus's blanket. 
these things attempt to explain the world and make it predictable, make it less complicated. And these provide us, especially for sixes that are looking for this, a sense of order, a sense of predictability, a sense of boundaries. This is how life works, a sense of security and a sense of future dictation. Now, the problem is that to any or all of these things, we can grow uncritically loyal to or beholden to or attached to these things that basically end up what? They end up controlling us instead. And the beautiful thing about sixes is that they're loyal. These are some of the best companions that you will ever know because they will stick with you. But the problem is unhealthy sixes tend to overattach themselves to things and people and institutions in ways that really control them. And we see how these life shelters, if you will, can grow very restrictive when, like Elliot losing his blanket in the airport, which really made me more full of panic, when you try to show up for life without these life shelters, or maybe worse, when someone threatens them, when someone threatens to take them away. And this is why in our echo chambers and our siloed political experiences that people are so threatened if you challenge their conclusion because we have so entrenched ourselves in that version of the world that our identity is wrapped up in whether it's right or wrong. And so when someone challenges it, really they're not challenging just the ideology, they're challenging who we are at far too deep of a level. So how do we square this circle of being a person, being people who want and legitimately need some form of security and yet realize at the same time there's nothing in the world that's going to provide it at the level that we need it and want it. Nothing that can soothe our insecurity that doesn't end up also controlling us. And in a way, this is really like asking, how do we be persons of faith? What is Christianity all about? How do we find hope in an unseen God? That's the circle that we're trying to square in this question. Now, I had a part where we were looking at James, and thankfully, I realized it was going to make the sermon far too long, so forgive me. We're going to look primarily at Jeremiah for just a moment, because it has been called survival literature. It's trying to square the circle for us, and it's written to Israel when they're in exile. They're overrun by a foreign power. Everything that they had looked to for security, every comfort blanket they had has been ripped away from them. Their land, the king, the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, the tablets of the law, everything is gone, long gone. It's a story of loss. It's a story in which the world feels hopeless It feels insecure, it feels unsafe, and yet here comes Jeremiah giving this long story that's different. It's a hopeful story, and it begins, yes, 
And there, you see this all through the book, this stark assessment of what has gone wrong. And a lot of the responsibility lies with the choices that Israel has made, that they have chosen to walk away from God. And some of their trauma is sort of self-inflicted. It's owing to their own bad choices, what we would call and what Jeremiah calls sin. But there's a counter-narrative through this long prophecy, which if we're reading carefully, becomes more of the narrative. The narrative is not the doom and gloom and the accusations, but the narrative is this long meditation of how it's possible to make your way in a traumatic world, in an unsafe world, and to say God where He doesn't appear to be. And to learn to cling to God, an unseen God, a spirit, in the midst of physical heartache, in the midst of unimaginable death and destruction. And he gives this counter-narrative by talking about this beautiful image, this fruitful branch. It's this new growth that begins to grow up right in the middle of their loss and their deprivation and right in the middle of danger. And if you haven't figured it out yet, unfortunately, this is how God tends to work, is that He shows up in ways that we don't often expect, and we're certainly not wanting, to, wanting Him to. And especially if we show up as sixes in life, and we're prone to move toward imagined safety, God shows up in a way that is often in great contrast. It's a counter-narrative to the way that we show up for life, to our narration of life and how it should be. You see, for Israel, there is no longer any imagined safety. All of their symbols, all of their blankets have been taken away. All appears lost because they look out and all they see is wasteland and desert and wilderness. But you see, maybe especially for sixes, that's really the only context in which we can begin to move towards something that offers more lasting hope, something that actually gives more real security, even though often unseen and coming to us in ways that we don't choose. And that's really the story of Easter, right? Of resurrection, Jeremiah squares the circle with two things, and we'll finish with just two thoughts or two aspects. One is this robust pessimism that the world is absolutely devoid of any sure and lasting shelter, and yet at the same time, in tension with that, this hard-fought optimism that there is indeed something at work against all of the desolation that we feel in life and something that will ultimately, if not immediately, validate our hope. And faith, you see, is the difficult journey of choosing to live in the tension of those two things, to inhabit both fully at the same time. And there's no other faith. There's no other Christianity. That's it. First of all, this robust pessimism. 
And how do sixes or how do any of us with sixness refrain from attaching ourselves, over-attaching ourselves to prophets of false security? As I said, healthy sixes are a delight to know. They're the best friends in the world. And they're the delight of churches and pastors and organizational leaders because they stay. They're loyal. They don't pick up their stuff and leave whenever things don't go exactly according to how they expect them to be because they have attached themselves to this institution and it's representative of some level of safety. They feel like they belong. And so they're a delight to have around as friends or institutions. It's so refreshing because they, th- they say things like, well, why would I leave when things get harder? I just disagree with the direction. However, unhealthy sixes, that same bent towards loyalty can work against them as they sort of overattach themselves to this group identity. They feel more secure inside a certain community. Even if it becomes toxic and hurtful, they'll stay because leaving is far more worrisome and scary than maybe the trauma facing what's going on in the midst of the community. They don't maintain that necessary critical distance between the people and the institutions that they're in relationship with. And so unfortunately what happens is that churches, institutions love sixes because they stay. They also, unhealthy churches, love them because they can manipulate them. They can control them. This story of exile that we read a part of in Jeremiah is the story of Israel basically being forcefully unattached to those things that they had invested far too, meaning, far too much meaning in. They had begun to identify them with the symbols of God, ark, temple, king, land, rather than his essence. And of course, the story is there for us because these things are also metaphorical, right? They're stand-ins for anything that we look to for insurance against the unpredictability of life. But we see just like as a parent eventually inserts themselves into a child's relationship with a passy or a blanket because they have to move into the next season or stage of life, God does this. And he helps Israel disentangle itself from these symbols so that they can finally connect themselves relationally to what is real. And friends, God is wanting to rescue us from all of our false securities and our false hopes so that we can find real shelter in relationship with him. Because none of these things, even though they promise us the world, will eliminate our suffering. None of us, none of it will keep us from or allow us to live outside our inherent vulnerability. Jeremiah wants us to be deeply pessimistic about about the false promises and the false hopes and the politicians that promise us the world. And yet, at the same time, to go through life with this hard-fought optimism. Why? Because of this branch that he talks about. The days are coming And this is verse 5 of 23, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely 
and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This righteous branch appears out of nowhere. It's looking fragile. It's looking vulnerable. It certainly itself appears insecure. It's just this tiny little green branch that's coming up out of a stump. And this is where we need the eyes of faith to see the potential in that because ultimate security isn't found where most people are looking. It's not in the big and in the impressive and in the promising things that look to us like they offer shelter. But what Jeremiah is saying and what I think the Bible ultimately says through Jesus is that this small green growth out of a dead stump is where promise and shelter is actually found. And that something has to die in order for new life and real hope to spring up. And I think this idea or this question has been lurking around the edges of our Enneagram study for each of us to ask, whether we're six or whatever number we might be, is that what has to die internally in order for me to truly live? What do I have to give up in order to find real freedom? What do I need to be pessimistic about in order to have real optimism? For Israel, it was obviously the dissolving of the monarchy and doubting of their confidence and all of these physical things so that their hearts could be open to the real thing, to the real king, the righteous branch. The Davidic throne, the monarchy would be restored, but the king that would come would not be a victorious warrior, but a small, vulnerable, and yet hopeful shoot that comes out of a nowhere place. This new symbol wouldn't be a temple or a monarchy, but it would be what? It would be a cross. It would be a symbol that pointed to victory through defeat. Because why? Because Jeremiah, speaking for God, says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. You see, friends, even children intuitively know that real safety doesn't come from this blanket that they're carrying around, but from where? From a parent. Real safety comes not ultimately from something, but from someone. And Jeremiah points to this righteous branch, to that someone being the coming Messiah that we think is Jesus, that we believe has come to grant us not immediate, but ultimate and lasting safety. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would cling not to necessarily what is seen and what appears to be obvious that everyone else is running toward, but Lord, that we would learn to be patient, that we would learn to live in the midst of pessimism and optimism. And that even when things don't go our way in an immediate sense, that we would long for your presence and we would pray for you to intervene in a way that is real and tangible and physical and earthly, but that our hopes would be ultimately placed in you, in the person, in the great comforter that can come 
and sit with us and be with us in the midst of a dangerous journey. And we pray as we come to this table that we see that you have done just that, that you have entered into our world, that you have become one with our pain and with our suffering and even with our sin so that you could set us ultimately free. And we pray that we would come with great delight to this table. In Jesus' name, amen.